Welcome to Talking About All Things Inclusion, a podcast where I get to meet and learn from people in the field of inclusion in its broadest sense that inspire me. I hope they'll inspire you too. Today I am talking with Nicole Tucker-Smith. As the founder and CEO of LessonCast, Nicole helps schools enact professional learning initiatives focused on inclusive teaching and equity best practice. She leads the Jumpstart PD Network, a community of educators to share ideas, spread resources, post tips and dialogue on key areas of interest related to designing and delivering effective PD. Nicola served as a teacher, supervisor of parent support services, principal and system-wide coordinator of professional development and training for Baltimore County Public Schools. She was also a program coordinator for John Hopkins University Center for Technology and Education and teaches as a faculty member for the JHQ School of Education. Nicole is an international present presenter on Universal Design for Learning, a member of the CAST National Faculty, and she provides professional development expertise to support enactment of UDL in P12 and higher education learning environments. Nicole, I first met you virtually in 2020 after I attended your presentation, Plantations, Prisons, K-12, Can UDL Lead to Equity? It such, struck such a strong note with me that I have tried to share your message, not always successfully, um, with friends and colleagues since. So I'm so delighted to have you on the podcast today to speak with you more about this story and also your work since then advocating for equity in education and society. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here today. Oh, I'm just so happy to have you here, Nicole. Uh, start you off with an easy question. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, and what it was that inspired you, firstly, to do that amazing presentation, and then secondly, on your exploration of UDL as a route for equity? Yes. So um, actually, the bio that you gave was was very nice, very kind. Um, yes. And so I've I've... I have experience in many different levels in terms of education and teaching and leading educational spaces. I think that my background, my expertise is really in designing adult learning environments. I'm also the author of Supercharge Your Professional Learning, which applies UDL strategies to adult learning um, environments and experiences. And it's through that lens of really designing professional development learning with an impact that I felt this need to really focus on issues around equity. I saw a lot of equity professional development that was not leading to an impact, not changing outcomes. People were leaving saying, yay, kumbaya, this feels great, but they weren't asking hard questions and they weren't looking at what their actual results were. What is actually different for learners who belong to groups that are have been historically marginalized? Um, where do you see disproportionate outcomes? Um, no, none of those questions were being asked. I felt like equity wasn't being applied in a specific context. And I also, um, I've been working with CAST and um, doing UDL professional development for years. and people would say, well, doesn't UDL already address equity? And, um, and I say, no, it doesn't. There are a lot of barriers that it does not touch, doesn't encourage teachers to reflect on them. If teachers do reflect on them through a UDL lens, it's because they're bringing something else to it. And I was having a tough time getting people to see that. And that's what 
led to plantations, prisons, PK-12, <laughs> because I wanted them to see, oh, here's a universally designed plantation. Is this equitable? And I think that um, that level of going outside of education and helping them see, yeah, you can have a universally designed school and be incredibly inequitable for many of our learners. Um, and so I also think that when I see professional learning that is focused on equity, but doesn't necessarily consider the neuroscience behind how people learn and what the learning curve looks like and what does it take in terms of actually putting new learning into practice, the importance of context. And that's where I said, well, UDL does have these core ideas to offer. If we can put the two worlds together, the two bodies of knowledge together, I think we can have a real impact and make a real difference around the world. Super, and you know, I love the way you talk about your 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 cores because in that presentation you had three foundational concepts, and I want to go back to you just said the universally designed plantation. Yes. I have to say, in my white privileged naivety, I thought this was like something really positive that you were saying. Oh, look, here was like universal design in a, a, a good way and then my god did you just blow that notion out of the water for me and not only in terms and it was such a good way I was like light bulb moment the but it was that you not only talked about racism and anti-racism but you brought in that anti-bias and mm -hmm. like anti-bias I felt helps me move from Mm -hmm. what my biases are to where racism and anti-racism exist and about it being the norm mm -hmm. not being the occasional mm -hmm. and how you spoke about that in terms of and um, the Monticello plantation you worked there isn't that right yes so in college uh back in 1999 I was a tour guide 98 99 I was a tour guide at Monticello I went to the University of Virginia uh, and uh, one of my courses was called, um, I think it was called Slavery at Monticello. I think that was the name of my course. And so as a tour guide, I did the basic house tour and I also did the plantation community tour. And it was really interesting there because um, uh, part of the plant the goal of the course actually designed the plantation community tour. So prior to like 95 or six, I don't think that tour existed. And so as part of the course, we were helping to craft that tour and we really wanted to um, put names and people, instead of saying slaves, the enslaved people, they were people right, who had been enslaved. And there was a story for all of them. And so we were trying to share that history at the um, at Monticello, and it was interesting because um, I was a tour guide there right when the DNA evidence was coming out about Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, and oh my gosh, all the tears from people who were so sad at finally having to confront that Thomas Jefferson not only fathered children with an enslaved woman, but then kept them enslaved too. Like that, he you can do that too. That's that that's the thing about. America recognizing, you know, and, and other places too that have issues with 
colonialization and, and, and all kinds of other forms of uh, marginalization and caste systems, but this idea that you can treat your own blood in such an inhumane way, but still universally designed. Yeah, <laughs> and that's how you flipped it on your head because from listening to you back then, it was universally designed to hide Yes, the, the enslaved people to yes. hide the racism that was existing, yes. and that like that that was a big flip, yeah, in thinking for a lot of people. It was universally designed to hide and to avoid confronting injustice, and there are parallels there in the educational system. It was universally designed to avoid confronting justice, to avoid hypocrisy to avoid the realization that this was not right yeah. and but the you know the quote that i often frame is that you know and he and he taught and thomas jefferson writes about this and one of his most famous quotes is we have the wolf by the ears but we can neither safely hold him nor let him go justice is on one scale and self-preservation in the other okay so, and I have heard that quote, mm -hmm. but now that you put it into context, yeah, it's it's not what a lot of people think it's about. No, it's about we can't let we can't let them go. Yeah, <laughs> that would be a serious cost to our way of living. Yeah, absolutely, and it, and it is again like it's it's that it's that that bias and that sense of privilege that like this is the way it has been. So this is the way it should be because we need to keep that status quo. And mm -hmm. I think even when you go into your foundational concept number two, that is leading on from that because that is accept intent and acknowledge impact. So mm -hmm. in that Jefferson quote, he knows what the intention is, mm -hmm. but he has completely skewered yeah. what the impact is. He's like, oh, well, this is the impact, but we're just not gonna pay attention to that. Like, we're just not gonna look at the impact. When he literally built Monticello up high so as to not look at the people who were enslaved below and mm -hmm. had all, all of the hidden dumb waiters and hidden passages and tunnels. Um, it, it wasn't, you know, that you can't say, well, oh, he just didn't know or oh, he's just a man of the times. No, he was an innovator he was an innovator of the times and innovated in that way. Yeah, and it, I like, and that's where innovation can go either way. And exactly. under under that second concept of accept intent, acknowledge and impact, I remember you talking about every system being perfectly designed to get the result that it wants. Yeah. And you talked about the, the dispro disproportionate discipline referrals, not only in terms of, because here you were talking about the prison in Angola, but again, mm -hmm. we're bringing that back to the dis disproportionate discipline referrals in schools yes. as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, and then the quote really is a, from Edward uh, W. Edward Dimmings, every system is perfectly designed to get the result that it does. And so when we look at our outcomes and we have consistent outcomes that are disproportionate, whether it's you're disciplining um, certain populations of students more harshly, then our system is designed that way. And one of the reasons why I felt really compelled to tell this was, um, this was also when, um, I think this was right around George Floyd's murder 
and um, Breonna Taylor's murder and Ahmaud Omri's murder. And I'm like, no, the system is doing it. When you consistently get these outcomes, the system is set up to get these outcomes. So you can, you can work on individual anti-bias and I do recommend that, but you also have to look at what the system is doing because you can only do so much as an individual without thinking about the collective, without thinking about the community, without thinking about the environment and how the environment is shaping and reinforcing biases or challenging them. And if we're not actively challenging them, then we're reinforcing them. And um, so, yeah, that's where that you can, you can say, well, my intent isn't to harm, but you're harming, <laughs> but you're harming. What is more important? Yeah, are my outcomes. What's more yeah. important? <laughs> and you, you've kind of hit on it there because I, I spoke about my own learning around my own individual bias, but I work in, in a community of educators mm -hmm. and there is often a community response. Well, that's the text in the curriculum. That mm -hmm. is the question. That is the school policy on bullying or behavior. Mm -hmm. um, and we take that. We have something to hide behind. Yep. Um, and what we're forgetting is that we have actually, as the edu educators, created that system to yeah. switch off. Yeah, you, we created that. System. Anytime somebody hides behind the policy, they like they like having that policy there. That policy is cover. And you know, as a because I was also um, an assistant assistant principal, and um, you know, one of the things I wanted to do is take the disrespect box off the discipline referral form like the way we form our discipline referrals what how is disrespect i know i know what disrespectful behavior is but sometimes i would just get you know students sent for disrespect disrespect says more about the person who's sending the student i felt disrespected yeah right it what was what what happened what was the action what you know that that's different and when you see that I mean, and it's and it's, this is it isn't random. It's it happens over and over again that for the same infractions, harsher consequences for um, Black and Brown students, especially Black students with a disability. And so I felt like UDL. If you um, you know, it's not it's, UDL goes beyond special education, but it did start there. Yeah. And if you can't stand up for those who are the furthest marginalized in our um, educational system, which is black students with disabilities or who are identified as having disabilities because they might not actually have them. Uh, that's a whole nother story about disproportionate uh, special education referrals. Yeah, but, it, but it's where intersectionality comes into it yes, as well. Exactly, yes. exactly. I was like, if you can't stand up for this, what, what are you standing up for? Yeah, yeah. and it, it's so important and it is like, I. For me, I kind of feel you do have to start as an individual because you have to be able mm -hmm. to recognize your own bias, but then you have to be willing to challenge people. And this was something you said as well. And I'm not sure if it was during this presentation or in, in one of our many conversations since, but you said there is a difference between being not racist and being anti-racist. And yes. that is such a huge learning curve in terms of our biases and where we're going. Yeah, I mean, and this, this is the thing, like if, whenever somebody says, well, I could never be racist, I'm like, you're just not paying attention to when you are. Yeah. You know, you, you just, and this is and this is true for any type of bias, like that's how the human brain operates. And if you're not confronting, then you're upholding. 
Yes. Um, and that's, and that's critical. That's critical. And the thing about it is, is it's, it does have to start internally, but I think what we have to recognize is that no one operates in a vacuum. Yeah. You know, you're, we are part of a community. We are part of a collective. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's being brave enough to challenge it. And like, after you said that, when I was in school or anywhere in society, if somebody said something disrespectful about a person with a disability or about our own minority group in Ireland, I would be incensed and I would challenge that person. But as immigration grew in Ireland and people started saying, oh, look at them or look at that, whether it be the country they were from or the color of their skin, mm-hmm. I didn't challenge that. And when yeah. you spoke that sentence to me, I, I had to ask myself, why will I challenge one area and mm-hmm. not the other area? And it was it was like the big step the first time I said to a friend, you can't speak that way about that person. But that friend started checking themselves wow. afterwards. And I thought we'd have a huge row. I really did. But they started checking themselves. So it's that one small step that leads yes. to a community, yes. which is your third foundational concept that communities are only as equitable as the most marginalized people feel so going back it's not about me feeling disrespected or me feeling upset or victimized or attacked all the words we like to use it's the feeling of that person and Mm -hmm. what they're communicating to us Mm -hmm. yes it requires centering those perspectives that have historically been marginalized and it, it does require that in order to see barriers that aren't barriers for the privileged. We have to recognize, and I even do this myself, whenever I'm in a situation and there's a barrier that like, I just, I didn't recognize that that was a barrier for someone. I have to recognize that I didn't see it because I'm sitting in a place of privilege. And to honor their perspective and to lean in and listen rather than try to deny their perspective because it's not what I see. We have to own that my, I have to own that my perspective is only my perspective. I'm the only person who sees this. And somebody else is going to see something different. And when we listen and empathize, we actually grow stronger because our vision is expanding. And so often we don't want to lean into that feeling of discomfort that comes with listening or learning something you don't already know, being open to something you don't already know. But it's that openness, that emptiness that allows us to get to something greater. And it's that openness that I have found leads to safe conversations and leads to, so if you you don't have the full knowledge, if you're not using the right language or you're asking the question the right way, that the person is providing that safe place, whether it be in a one-to-one conversation like this or in a professional development community where they can highlight the mistake, tell you the language to use, give the reasoning behind it, which then in turn is creating a larger anti-bias community as well. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah, and to do that, you need the empathy, which you talk about in in everything we talk about, you talk about empathy, and you need to be able to do that, you need to put yourself into the shoes of the other person. Yeah, and I always I talk about empathy as a choice, we have to, we have to choose empathy. Because here's the thing, we actually as human beings, we're really great at empathizing with people who look like us. 
Yeah. We're, really, we're really great at empathizing at, with folks with whom we identify. We will empathize all day long with our in-group. The issue happens with the disparity between our empathy for our in-groups and our empathy for our out-groups. Out-groups are just groups that are different from ours. And that's where you see a lot of the inequities. It's when I'm just, you have to, you have to proactively choose to empathize with outgroups. Yeah. And that's where the, the ableism comes into it as well, because mm -hmm. again, you know, it's often the mantra, well, you know, they just need to fit into society as it is. Mm -hmm. Forgetting that a certain cohort has created society as it is, um, and therefore, like ableism, whether it's in disability, race, religion, whatever it is, it's there as well. And unless we can have that emptiest choice, and I love that, that like it yeah. is a choice that we have to make and a conscious choice we have to make every day, um, that without that, that we're never going to reduce that barrier of ableism that's within us as individuals as well as within our system. Yes, and another requirement for choosing empathy is including diverse perspectives because how are you going to empathize if you are never uh, having any kind of interaction <laughs> with, with, with people who are different? I mean, the, how are you going to empathize? And, and, and this is really, so this is another reason why I chose to um, pursue this work even more intentionally is um, so in January of 2020, I was diagnosed with breast cancer and I became very particular with how I spent my time because my time is now being infringed upon with all of these cancer treatments. Yeah. Well, one of the treatments I had to do was chemotherapy and they have a newer technology. The first one was approved back in like 2017. It's called a, a, calp, a scalp cooling, a, a, a cooling cap for your scalp, a cooling cap. And um, you, you put it on your head while you're receiving chemo treatment and it's supposed to reduce the amount of toxins that go to your hair follicles so that you don't lose as much hair. You'll still lose a little bit, but you won't lose as much hair. And so the reason why I'm telling this story is, so I get to go to my first appointment, they put the cooling cap on and or they're getting ready to put the cooling cap on and the nurses are giving me the instructions that they've received from the company. And they said, well, in order for this to work, we need to wet your hair so it'll lie flat. And I said, what? Wetting my hair does not make it lie flat. That white people wet their hair <laughs> to make it lie flat. <laughs> That's not what happens with people who have hair texture like mine. If I wet my hair, it might be flat for a second, not really, but then it'll curl and it'll poof. It will expand. It's like, if I wet my hair, it will expand. It's not, I was like, I was like, do you need it to be wet or do you need it to be flat? You can't have both. And they were like, well, they say we need it to be this way. And so we did it that way. Did not work for me. Basically what happened is my hair expanded and made like a hat on my head and prevented the, the cooling cap from even reaching my scalp. I made a little bit of a stink. And so the, um, the company called me because this is not approved by um, insurance. Insurance doesn't pay for this. You have to pay for it out of pocket and it's not cheap. And so the company called me, they sent somebody, her voice sounded like she was black. I'm pretty sure they did that on purpose. And she was like, we recognize that our directions are not adequate for people with hair like yours. And in my mind, I'm like, but you sold me this device though, uh, that is four figures. And, um, and so what she, she said, but we are doing um, research now in the UK on ways to make it work for um, black hair. So I said, okay. So last year in July of 2021, 20, I decided to look up 
I was doing some re- I was doing some research. I can't remember why, but I was looking at FDA rules around this, and I started thinking, how in the world did they get FDA approval to use this device when they didn't know how it was supposed to work on black hair? Because there's an FDA policy. There's a rule that you cannot get approved unless you have included diverse populations in your sampling. And so I went and I looked at what um, evidence did they submit as to whether or not they um, could get FDA approval. And in their studies, they only included white women. Wow. And so here we have a national policy saying you have to have diverse groups in your um, clinical trials, but they didn't. And this is why black people are skeptical of things like the vaccine, because they're like, how do I know that you included me? Because you never have. It's 2020 and you still aren't. I'm shocked by that, Nicole. Yes, it was all white women. And so, but here's where it gets worse. So in 2021, they published the results from the UK study. They had to discontinue the study because they couldn't show, they couldn't continue to show proof of efficacy. And all the women were dropping out because they were losing their hair in such massive amounts. Do you know why? Because they made them all wet their hair in this idea, this bizarre idea that it would somehow make it lie flat in spite of the fact they're looking at it and it's not working. Well, my best friend also works in a brain lab. And so I asked her, she runs it, not works, she runs the brain lab. She runs the brain lab. And uh, she's a doctor. And um, I asked her, I was like, you know, they told me I have to wet my hair for this conductivity. I feel like that's bogus. She's like, no, you do. You have to have a certain level of conductivity, but it doesn't have to be water. It could be hair gel. When I do it with black people, I use hair gel. It was that simple. And they just couldn't. But they, yeah. they have now published a study and said, their findings say that Black people can't use the cooling cap and expect to get results. That's their findings. So in, instead of, there's so many things there. First of all, you're, you're going in, in a traumatic time in your life to get yes. cancer treatment and you are trying to educate yes. the people who are meant to know how to use this. Yes. And then secondly, rather than adapting it or UDLing it, they just mm-hmm. decide to marginalize you and say you don't fit into exactly my god and that's why i said i that's why i said i was like this is where i so i was using a udl approach with them i was like tell me what your goal is i need you to understand what your goal is between this device and my body if the goal is conductivity it doesn't need to be wet with water we can use hair gel and then my hair will lie down I know I have I have lots of years of practice of lying my hair down. Black women know how to make their hair lie down. It's just not with water. But they didn't oh. ask us. They didn't ask us. My goodness. So did you have to discontinue it then? Was it just like you're out of it? Oh, I lost all my hair. I only had I only had bangs. The rest of my head was bald. Yeah, I, lost, I, I, I remember shave, seeing I you. My head. Yeah. I had to shave my head because it oh. fell out in such large clumps. I had to shave my head. I only had these bangs here because that's the one part of my scalp that wasn't covered by the rest of my hair. So as a black woman, you were you were paying a lot of money to be marginalized and mm-hmm. told mm-hmm. what to do, even though you knew it wasn't right for you. Exactly. Oh my, and there's so many ways we can bring that back to the classroom. That is, that and is. It, this is 2020 and there are parallels like that in the educational system. Yeah. 
where we the 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 norm the the what is dictated by the school is they have this commitment to fidelity. It has to be this way. The canon has to be this way. It, without it's, recognizing the cost. Yeah, and it really is a cost for everybody. It's even hurting them. It's going to hurt their margins. They could have been selling to all these other people. But now they're saying, oh, we just can't sell to you. And I'm sure there are some white women with thick hair who would have benefited too. Absolutely. And it, like it, it, it goes past a, a lack of empathy and even a lack of ethics that like they, it's just like this tunnel vision, which we get in education as well. Mm -hmm. This mm -hmm. tunnel vision, this is the way it is. And we're this not it is. diverting. And I remember um, since you have brought up your, your cancer, I remember when we were talking while you were going through treatment and it was just after COVID had started and you were telling me that obviously you needed to change your, your work-life balance to get your treatments. And you contacted all of the organizations you work for. You said, can I do it online? And they were like, no, 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 this has to be face-to-face. -face. And I think mm -hmm. it was like two, three months later, they're all not even, it was door. like, just like, a, it was like a maybe week. one month. It was oh so my, fast yeah. after that. Then they're like, oh, then all of a sudden everybody started calling me because they were like, well, we know that you know how to do this virtually because you asked us before. Yeah. So <laughs> they have yeah, all been telling me, no, no, we have to do, you have to come face to face. I was like, well, then I guess I can't do it. Yeah. So it like, it, it shows, first of all, again, that that blind spot, we're rigid. This is the way we do it. We don't care. First of all, if you have an illness or second of all, if you can do it in a, in a different Mm -hmm. more engaging way or more accessible way mm -hmm. but as soon as it then it impacts them or impacts the status quo they're mm -hmm. back to the person who they excluded to say come come back into the fold and help us mm -hmm. they're like oh oh now we know we need help come come help us and even in um it's 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 yeah it's it, it, i mean you have to have a certain level of okay fine <laughs> <laughs> Do you, I was like, do you if this is what it took if this is what it took and even like and, and here's the thing and, and and when I'm finally when I when I do that okay fine you know it's because I'm recognizing that we're all learning and my purpose is to help the collective world be a better place and even with words like I would say all the time blind spot too I would say oh well that's a blind spot and then I had a friend who was like well you know that's really ableist language and I was like, oh, tell me more. And I was like, well, a blind spot's an actual thing. She was like, yeah, but if you use it in a pejorative way, then it's an ableist use of being, um, concept of being blind. It's saying that there's, um, it's, it's, it's centering or elevating sight in a way that is not um, conducive to valuing different ways of knowing and perceiving. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, yeah, it's, it's complete making excuses. It goes, it goes back mm -hmm. to your second concept. Yeah. The excuses we make are the blind spot. Yeah. But I remember one time I was doing a presentation and I was like, oh, well, that would be like the blind leaving the blind. And then I, and, it, and as soon as I came out of my mouth, I was like, that is a horrible thing to say. Yeah. How pejorative is that? You know? Um, and it, it is like it's it's those norms it's those things that are acceptable mm -hmm. for us to say and mm -hmm. like both of us here we're, we're so conscious of not marginalizing people of being mm -hmm. inclusive of of 
trying to walk in other people's shoes and these phrases come out of our mm-hmm, mouths mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so when i when i take a moment and think about that i say okay i'm gonna have a little bit of i'm gonna i need i need to have cultural humility as well and so that's when i'm like okay fine i'm i'm gonna help you out even though you just told me you wouldn't accept my <laughs> compromise <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But it, it goes back to, again, when you were talking about concept number three in the, in the presentation, you talked about the here in the presentation, you were talking about the weakness of standardized examinations, but actually oh, yeah. it's the weakness of standardization in general. Period. Yes. Yeah. It's the idea that the goal, it's the, it's the, it was a whole concept of like the goal matters, the goal matters. And we um, tend to marginalize folks when we focus on goals that um, without recognizing their either intended or unintended consequences. And like, so with standardized testing, but really it was with the standardization, a lot that happened um, over here with No Child Left Behind, but it happens in other countries that have their own version of standardization. Mm -hmm. It's this idea that these are the things that everybody must know, and we're going to test them in this rigid way. And when we force that, what would you can, you can just see the school to prison pipeline happening. And what happens is we incentivize teachers to push out students that either aren't going to help them get good test scores because it has real consequences for them. We've had schools close. I showed a picture of the school that it closed because of test scores being too low. So they're incentivized to push kids out who aren't going to help their scores. And so those communities are only going to be as equitable as those students who've now been pushed out feel it to be yeah. and so that's if we don't look at who's most marginalized in this space rather than asking teachers how equitable do you feel the community is well i'm not going to ask you i'm going to ask who might feel like they're they they don't um that they're not part of the group that they don't belong and and really the thing is that um it's funny when i work with with educators and they'll say things like we want our students to feel like they belong here i'm like we need to remember that schools belong to them. You're the guest, you drive here. Schools belong to the community. Yeah. So this whole idea, we want them to feel like they belong. No, 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 no. You need to, you need to act like you belong. Yeah, and we, we need to ask our, ourselves, mm-hmm. what are we doing to make them feel undervalued mm-hmm. or not belonging in mm-hmm. their community? In, in their space own that community. Sh- yeah, in, in a space that should be safe for them. And, you mm-hmm. know, it, it's going back to your second concept, concept where you, you did talk about the disproportionate discipline referrals. And I'm thinking just because we, we had a conversation a week or two ago in terms of UDL about minimizing threats. And it sounds mm-hmm. that for a lot of us, our behavior policies aren't about minimizing threats. It's about punishment or in some cases, as, as you've just said, getting them out so that the outcomes are better. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, I mean, it, uh, so much of it is about removal so that you can ultimately get better testing outcomes. Which is really scary. And if you were to go into, so a, a school with young people, or I know because you work with, with um, adults as well, mm-hmm. and you were to give them advice on changing those negative and dangerous behavior policies to a policy mm-hmm. that minimizes threats mm-hmm. for their learners, what mm-hmm. would your advice be? 
So my advice is always to first is to, so here's the thing about when you're trying to move equity work forward. My, my, what I, one of the things I would say is that context is key. Context is key to equity work. It, it is, context is what drives equity work forward. So I say like pick a bucket and then figure out what drop in the bucket you're going to start with. So whether you're going to focus on curriculum, you're going to focus on assessment, you're going to focus on your discipline policies, you're going to focus on family engagement, maybe you want to focus on climate, maybe you want to focus on the physical environment, but let's say you're going to focus on your discipline policy. All right, so you've picked your context. Now look at what are your act, well, you can do it a couple of ways. Thinking about your discipline policy, before you look at your data, with a diverse room of people, what would we want it to be? What is our vision? How, how would we, what would, what would our discipline policy look like when we're operating as our best selves? Paint that picture first, envision that first. Then go look at your data and be like, hmm, where is the gap? Where is the gap? And then you have to do a little bit of digging and a little bit of exploring and like what might be some of the policies, or actually let's back up, what might be some of the practices that are influencing this gap? And then what might be some of the policies that are driving those practices? And then change your policies. And then watch what happens. And if it's not moving in the right direction, give it some time and then shift again. And when you're getting data as to whether or not it's working, ask those who may have been most likely to be marginalized in the first place. Don't ask people who are already comfortable. How do they yeah. feel? And it goes back to what you, you say then again about this empathy and about our, our own learning and our own practices being so reflective. Mm -hmm. um, and that's it. Like we, we, we do that digging, we find that gap, mm -hmm. we try something but what often happens in a school is we try it, it doesn't work. And we say, oh, it didn't work. We go back to the old way. Right, right, right. The reflection. You got to iterate. Got to yeah. iterate. <laughs> you got to yeah. iterate. Mm -hmm. It's just, and I think, um, again, uh, just for listeners, if you're not getting how much I loved Nicole's presentation back then, it was amazing. But you ended it with, with a quote, you quoted lots of other people, but you said yourself that when educators share their stories, it not only shines light on the speaker, it gives the listener courage to try. And yeah. that is that reflective piece and that being able to go, okay, well, we tried it, it's not working, let's try something else mm -hmm. in that space environment where everyone is included, like mm -hmm. that we've asked who's not in the room, why aren't they in the room and how do we get them into the room? Mm -hmm. or can we open the door why is the I door closed that. why is the door closed <laughs> why, oh. is the door closed? why are we like, in a room <laughs> <laughs> oh my god like that actually is the question is why is the door closed why are we like in this four walled that's not community yeah. that's still in and out yeah it really is. Nicole, I like I, I know I've honed in on this presentation, but I also know that like that was 2020 over 18 months ago. You have done so much more in terms of bringing equity forward and not just for black people, but in terms of disability, race like you are. We've we've talked about those seven headings of equity. You're not you're not a tunnel vision person. Right. What have you been doing in the last 18 months around that? 
Uh, yes. So I am one of the co-chairs for UDL Rising to Equity. And so this is a commitment that I made um, in August of 2020. And um, we have been working to, it's a community driven process. So Jenna Gravel and I are the co-chairs, but we are working with an advisory council, stakeholder groups. Um, we're also, we're starting to bring in learner perspectives. We are doing intergroup uh, interviews, focus groups, but it's really with the purpose of taking a, a long look at where are the UDL guidelines not living up to their full potential in helping um, teachers and learners identify barriers to equity, right? So we, um, the UDL guidelines currently help identify barriers around um, perception and, and some barriers around engagement, but they don't consider barriers that are a result of how others perceive other identities. So if I am even in even ableism, the UDL guidelines don't right now prompt us to design to eliminate barriers caused by ableism or racism or transphobia or ageism or other things, you know, sexual discrimination or sexual orientation, gender discrimination. It doesn't protect that. It doesn't prompt anyone to question, maybe that's what's happening here. And if you look at the research, it's clear that um, those isms do impact learning environments. I mean, the evidence is there. And the evidence was there even when the guidelines were being created at first, but it's about who was in the room. It may not have been as diverse. And this is, and this is not something that I'm making up. This is the, the founders of UDL. And I've been working with David um, Rose because he feels very passionate about this as well. And if you ask me, some of the barriers that you know I've seen related to learning, there are a whole lot that I've seen due to, and and, I, and I'm always careful to say like barriers that I may face aren't due to my race. It's not my barriers aren't due to my race. Barriers may be due to racism, and that is a huge difference. Barriers are not in the person. Barriers in the environment, right? And the things that are being done, the practices that are happening in the environment, and um, I cast asked me if I would consider it and I thought long and hard because I'm very particular about my time now and <laughs> but I thought it was important and I feel like UDL has something to really offer the conversation now I was clear I was like look what I don't want cast to do is like okay now we know all the things about equity because they don't you haven't been there there have been people who've been doing the work what you can say is we recognize that we haven't included this body of work, this research, we can educate ourselves and we can offer, here's an approach, a design approach that with layered with an equity lens can have a real benefit to all. Yeah, and I think what you said there about not knowing mm -hmm. everything about equity is so important because it is, again, going back to empathy and understanding it is we, I can't walk in your shoes. I can just try based on continuing to learn to empathize mm -hmm. with the barriers. And I love that you said barriers caused by so right. that I can empathize with you because of the barriers caused by racism, disability, religious bias, whatever it is to you. 
because right. they are being they right. are having that impact on you right. not on me right because even if I have a disability the barrier is like if I have a disability even if a temporary disability let's say I'm on crutches the barrier is the stairs the barrier is not my foot the barriers right the barrier is the stairs or if even if I have um like right now so I am at the point where I can't really see up close you know you get older you can't really see (laughs) (laughs) so I have to hold things away Uh, and so you know in that case the barrier is the print is small (laughs) yeah and I can use uh you know my reading glasses or I can use uh, the reading the glasses app on my phone. I use that sometimes, um, but it's it's about you know the interaction um, and looking at where the barriers are caused there. And at first, it may seem as educators to to take on that barriers are in the environment and not the people. It may seem like we're taking on a lot of responsibility, but that's what actually where educators get their agency back. Yes. If yes. we're if we're giving we're saying all the barriers are in the people, well then why why are you here? Yeah. You know, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. And and sometimes you also have to, when you're talking about barriers in the environment, you as the teacher need to recognize you are part of that environment and you're you can be a barrier. Mm-hmm. Yes. The yeah. way you use your tone, the way, you know, just the way you treat um, learners, you can't treat all learners the same way because they're not one person. Yeah. Oh, it's just... Nicole I, I we go on tangents all the time I could stay talking to you for like another hour but I know you have a very busy schedule so before we come to the end of our conversation um, are there any resources or further independent learning that you would like to share with us today? Um, well um, I will say that in um, March 2021 I had an article published in Educational Leadership and it's called The Illusion of Equity PD. And I highly recommend that. And then there's some articles that I cite in that that I recommend as well. Super. Yep. And then um, recently I've been doing a lot of reading of, I, I love Cultivating Genius by Goldie Muhammad, that book there. And I'm also a big fan of Elena Aguilar, Coaching for Equity. Yeah. yeah, you recommended coaching for equity to me, I think when I first got here and I started reading it and it's brilliant. I, I tend to just pick it up. I'm not reading it in a linear way. Yeah, me either. I know. Yeah, <laughs> I just tend to pick it up and it is really, really brilliant. And then actually, um, my, top, my top book right now, though, I will say, though, is Cast by Isabella Wilkerson. Oh, okay. That is, I think, a must read for every human being on the planet super I'm when this podcast finally comes out I will attach all of these and and links to it so I might follow you back on that um Nicole any final words of wisdom that you would like to share with everyone today oh I should have been prepared for this question final words of wisdom I just I think that um just I think one thing that we're supposed to learn from this you know global pandemic is that we're all connected and that we're all in this together. Actually, one of my favorite quotes right now is Audre Lorde's quote. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm, gonna use, I'm gonna use her quote. What is it that she said? She said, it's not that, oh, I'm gonna get, I don't wanna mess it up. Um, here it is. Uh, here we go. Oops, 
It's not our differences that divide us. It's our inability to recognize, accept, and celebrate those differences. And I think that's really key. I love that. It's really I love that. Oh, what a perfect way to end. So on that note, I will say goodbye to everyone listening. Um, Nicole, thank you so much for giving us your time today. Everyone at home, thank you so much for joining myself and Nicole for talking about all things inclusion. And I hope you will all join me again soon. Thanks, Nicole. You're welcome.